Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would minister to our hearts what your heart values and wants for us. May you make us and find us submissive, ready to hear and ready to grow into the character of our most pleasing Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I don't need to tell you that gravity is a strong force. If you've gone to school, you know that. It's a strong force for good. It keeps our feet on the ground, gives us stability. Our life flourishes because of gravity. But it can also be a force for calamity as well. If you happen to get pushed off a tall building or high cliff, falling and flailing to our death. And there is a gravity inside our hearts as well. And when we incline our hearts to walk towards his good and consider it good and pleasant for us, then we get what Jesus calls the abundant life here and now and life forever with him in heaven. But the trouble is, is that the gravity of our heart since the fall of Adam and we all fell in him is depravity's gravity. Depravity is moral corruption as defined by God, particularly in relation to him. If we walk towards evil, we walk toward our lust and our appetites and our vile desires, trying to bring heaven down to earth now on our own terms, but only to find that death and hell will find us afterwards. The main idea of this passage is that the Lord's patience has a limit to this depravity's gravity, and his wisdom sets the clock on that limit. And the central point is, is that the Lord is jealous for your heart, and you want him that way, because there's no hope without that jealousy. So the big question is, how does my heart with this depravity's gravity test the Lord's patience? Well, in two ways, according to this passage. The desire to devour and the deception of depravity. 
First, the desire to devour. We're going to look at parallel lines, literal lines lifted from Scripture, parallel lineages, as we saw in chapter 4, the lineage of Cain, and all that he did and all that his descendants did, and the lineage of Seth in chapter 5. And then we're going to look at parallel limits. First, parallel lines. This desire to devour shouldn't shock us. It's like Satan. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8 in your scripture sheets. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone, what? To devour. And we can take on that character too because he's our natural first father by birth. Paul warns the Galatians, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out. In verses 1 and 2, we see a triad of words that should be familiar to us, and we'll show that in a minute. We see the words saw, attractive, and took. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives. Any they chose is what it says. It's like the idea, even as many as they chose, the sons of God with the daughters of man. And that's man as mankind. It should sound familiar. Up in chapter 3, verse 6, it's on your scripture sheets there. Look at what Eve, as she gave in to Satan's temptation, look at what it says that she did. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She devoured it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He devoured. We see it in biblical history. You can think of countless men in the Bible, countless men in our present day and all throughout history that have fallen victim to their lust. And we live in a society that promotes that with pornography, with relaxed morals. Oh, that's just the way men are. Or with relaxed morals on marriage. People can cohabitate without any flank of conscience at all. Kids have sex outside of marriage because it's expected. In fact, there's almost a shame for being a virgin when you get married. A shame for that. People laughing at you and making fun of you for that. This is the pattern of depravity's gravity. Look at David and Bathsheba. The context of these verses on 2 Samuel 11 looking at part of verses 2 and 4, is that it was springtime, it says in verse 1 of that chapter, and that's when kings go off to battle. But David sent some other dudes out, and he stayed back in Jerusalem. And he finds himself up on the roof of his house late one afternoon, as it says there in verse 2. David was walking on the roof of the king's house, and get this, that he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent messengers, messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Another man's wife devoured by David's lust. And all those three words are the same basic words in the Hebrew. It literally says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good. Meaning like good looking. Attractive, like it's translated. 
But it's the same, same word, same pattern, over and over and over again. So that's the parallel lines, but let's look at the parallel lineage of the Canaanite and the Sethite lines. Who were these sons of God? Well, in short, we'll say, from the immediate context, it's God's people. The Sethite line of chapter 5. And we get the first clue of this from that verse that I want to keep hammering home because it sets the stage for the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. It's on your sheets there. When God is cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning mutual hostility between the serpent and the woman, between Satan and Eve and all women that come after. But it's not just the women, it's who is born of woman? The rest of the human race. So it's enmity between the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, of the serpent. And then it goes to the singular. We have this collective noun, which is singular, offspring. But then it goes to a singular person. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's an ultimate seed of the woman that is a man and it must be a man because Adam is the head and he failed. So we need a new head of the human race and any who would come to him, meaning Jesus, who succeeded in fulfilling all of God's law from the heart. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Where did that happen ultimately? On the cross for your sins and mine. That was the heel bite of the serpent. But in that same motion, especially as Jesus took our sins with him to the tomb, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified, died, and buried. And he buried our sins there. And he rose up victorious and crushed the head of the serpent. But let's look at some more of the immediate context of the first readers of this. This was Moses who wrote this. And who was Moses leading around in the desert because they disobeyed God? The Exodus generation. As God was preparing the Exodus to happen, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, I'll just read verse 22. You can read the rest and see how sonship works in there. What does God call Israel, his people? He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel was raised up as a collective group of people to be that seed of the woman, to be that example to the nations. By the way, that's us today. It's just a continuation of the same thing. It's just not concentrated in one nation as a theocratic geopolitical state. As Jesus told the woman at the well, God's seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, meaning... There's no physical boundaries. You can be anywhere on God's green earth and be a part of Israel, which is just God's true people. So the sons of God are these Sethites in chapter 5. Who are these daughters of man? Notice it's singular, daughters of man, not daughters of men. It's a collective again. It means more than one people. Some translations say daughters of men, but that misses the key point. That this is representative of who we are, that we are all born seed of the serpent. If we're just born naturally, we got to be born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we have to have a rebirth of the heart that Jesus is working this newness from the inside out. But these daughters of man are represented by Cain's line. 
Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. But he sacrificed the firstborn rights that he had and the duties that he was supposed to care for the family, that he was being raised up as the next head of that family. But he had a hard heart towards God and worship, and we see this in the first seven verses of chapter 4. And then he was supposed to look after his younger brother, but what did he say to God? Am I my brother's keeper? And God's saying, yeah, you are. You're the firstborn. You're supposed to sacrifice for him, not him for you. And then we see that he's replaced in chapter 4, verse 25. In fact, he becomes the new firstborn, Seth, because Abel's killed and Cain's forfeited his right to be the firstborn anymore for murdering Abel. And Seth is raised up, and his name means appointed. As Eve said, God has appointed another to take Abel's place, and he's raised up as the firstborn. But you look, just seven generations down, counting from Adam is the way Hebrews counted, through the line of Cain comes this really bad dude. We've talked about him before. His name is Lamech. Lamech. And in verse 19, we see he's the first polygamist of chapter 4. And in verse 23, we see he's the first multi-murderer. He's a polygamist. That's not what God said. God said, a man shall leave his mother and father. Again, male and female. He created them. No gender confusion here. No homosexuality here. A man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast, meaning bond strongly to his wife, to form another unit, to be one flesh. What does Lamech do here? Two wives. And then he's boasting and bragging, and he's actually threatening his wives. Look, a man just wounded me, and I killed him. And a little boy tried to hit me too, and I took him out. Don't you dare go against Lamech. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. You thought Cain was a bad dude? And he is. Boy, he's presented really badly. Lamech is worse, and he proves that he says it. Cain's revenge is sevenfold. Lamech is 77-fold. Eleven times more because I killed two. And by the way, I'm planning to do some more if I have to. He's a gangster. He's a mafioso. That's how he get, makes his way in the world. And so Lamech's children, we see, are those industrious boys that made a lot of useful things, tents and massive livestock farming and music and weapons and tools and cooking utensils, all very good things, useful things. You think they might have gotten rich in their day, probably were, because they were very industrious. But what would they do with their money with a father like Lamech? It's what their hearts do. It's their hearts. That's the problem. There's manipulation. There's a mafioso-ness to them. And then we have like a sore thumb sticking out. This girl, Naamah. None of the other genealogies have women mentioned because males are the head. Why is this one mentioned? By the way, her name means lovely, beautiful. Not the same word as in Genesis 6-2 here in our text, but nonetheless the same conceptual meaning of pretty, beautiful, good-looking. And so let's compare and contrast Seth and Cain. Seth is the firstborn, and look at chapter 4, verse 26. What does it say at the end there? These people were calling upon the name of the Lord, and that's the 
familiar name of the Lord that not everybody can do. Only the children of God could use his name, Yahweh. And it's a call, typically in the Bible, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you're looking for mercy and protection. Look at what David says in Psalm 18.3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved, what? From my enemies. And we look at Lamech, and, we, and you can imagine these godly people looking at someone like Lamech and going, he's a bad dude. When sin gets passed down generation to generation, when people get together and deal with their sin, it just grows worse and worse. It metastasizes. And so then you look at the seventh from Adam via Seth, and it's Enoch. And Enoch, probably the most godly man who ever lived that was still a sinner. And he called upon God for, for that mercy, and guess what God did? He said, you don't have to die, Enoch. I'll take you to myself. And so you see Lamech and Enoch, the, the worst guy that we could possibly imagine and the best man that we could ever muster. And look at their children in the next generation. Lamech has, as he said, the three sons and Naamah, the daughter. And then Seth has Enoch, and his son is Methuselah. Born at the same time, roughly around the time of Naamah. And what is the name of Methuselah's son? Look at chapter 5, verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered who? Lamech. Now, Jewish tradition says that Methuselah and Naamah married. Now, I can't prove that from the scripture. I'm just saying it's very interesting that Lamech, Methuselah's son, is named after the worst dude that ever lived. So you see, this is a possible way that the sons of God, thinking that, oh, I, I can change her. It doesn't matter. Because, you know, they got a lot of money and think what we could do with the, that money for the kingdom of God. And, you know, she's kind of easy on the eyes. So, yeah. See, Methuselah saw that she was attractive and took her, devoured. So that's the parallel lineage. By the way, Methuselah's name means his death shall bring. His death shall bring what? He dies the year of the flood, the judgment of God on the sons of God. Because the sons of God had mingled so much with the daughters of man that it was indistinguishable. And in many surveys, the church seems indistinguishable from the world and its values. And we shouldn't be. We shouldn't tolerate sin. We shouldn't call what God calls evil good and what God calls good evil. Oh, it's only love. Just two men loving each other. But that's not good. It's not about the people. It's not even the quote-unquote ick factor. It's about how God designed this to be. Because this marriage is the most intimate expression of his love for his people. It's supposed to be a model of that. And that can't happen with two men or two women. That's biblical. We do not call what God calls evil good. And we do not call good what God calls evil. Isaiah 5.20 And so we see that even their great people in verse 4 could not help them. The Nephilim were around in those days. These great men of old, of renown. Probably a lot like uh, the three sons of Lamech. Very industrious. All that industry, all that money, all that government power. 
couldn't save these people, couldn't turn them around. And God's people are saying, I'm calling upon your name, Lord, to protect us, to change us. We can't do this ourselves. And there's no hope because we have this devouring desires that we don't know what to do with, this depravity is gravity that leads to looking to man instead of God and cohabitating and sex outside of marriage and kids are going to do it and can't stop them and all men have this weakness. But it's deception because it's in the heart. Verse 5, what does it say? That not only the thoughts of the heart, but the intentions underneath the thoughts, this is that gravity. It's a gravity that kind of works opposite. It bubbles up from below and comes out. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's evil not because we're not as bad, that we are as all as bad as we could be. It's evil because a holy God sees it for exactly what it is in each and every one of us. That at bottom, we're not looking to glorify him and enjoy him forever. No, we're looking to glorify me and enjoy me forever. We're looking for our own comfort. And so that's the deception of depravity. That the gravity of your heart can pull your life apart. So beware of the desire to devour. And look, I'm not above this. I am talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. Beware of the desire to devour and this deception of depravity that the whole world is saying the same thing in a nice big chorus and we don't want to look like a fool. But it starts deep in the heart, that devouring heart, and parallel to God's heart. Look at verse 6. That God was sorry, not because he was taken by surprise by this, but because he's trying to communicate to us like we're little five-year-olds and we are compared to him. And just give us a little taste of what it means. It grieved him to his heart. The evil in our hearts grieved God to his heart. And that's what tests his patience. Believing the deception of the world little by little. And God's saying, I'm a person and I'm jealous for your heart. I want you. Don't you see? Why do you keep looking to the world? Why do you turn from my word and look to man's word who have all these same evil inclinations? Come to me and I will give you rest. Look at Exodus 34. For you shall worship no, this is the Exodus generation, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited and you eat of his sacrifice, devouring, and you, listen to this, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. And this happened to Solomon. The, the irony of Solomon's life, the wisest man who ever lived, and yet, Look at what happened, 1 Kings 11.4. For when Solomon was old, his wives, his 700 wives, 300 concubines, coming from foreign lands, turned his heart, turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So it's an attempt to destroy God, but God says, I have appointed a definite day, as Paul says, in Acts 17, 31, to the Athenians, 
He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has, look at this, appointed to take the place of Adam, the firstborn, like Seth was appointed to take the place of Cain, Jesus. And let's apply this to those first readers, this Exodus generation. Who read Genesis 6 first, the Exodus people? Well, you know what happened? Right before they're going into the promised land, we have this guy named Balaam. And Balak, the king of Moab, he was afraid of Israel at this time, and he wanted Balaam, who was a diviner, a wizard, a witch doctor, he knew a bunch of religions and knew their rituals, and he wanted Balaam to give a curse on the Israelites and stop them cold. But every time Balaam opened his mouth, he couldn't do anything but bless them because God was watching out for his people. But look what happens. Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with who? The daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, they devoured, and bowed down to their gods. In Revelation, we see what Balaam came up with. As Christ speaks to the church of Pergamum from his throne, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pretty dark place. Pretty dark place. But he says in verse 14 of Revelation 2, but I have a few things against you. So you're not set up very well to live in this dark place. Why? Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was that stumbling block? So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. It's the same story over and over again. So where's the hope? Verse 8, but Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Who was Noah's great-granddaddy? Nasty, evil Lamech. Noah could have thought, how am I going to ever escape this? This is so generational in my family. Well, look at chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Noah's father, Lamech, not the evil, nasty one, but a much better Lamech, when he had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. Now, that's different because it just usually supplies the kid's name at that point. But he fathered a son. Why? Because he's looking for that one who will become the seed of the woman. He thought Noah would be that one. He named him relief or rest or comfort. That's what Noah means. Because in verse 29, he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's looking for the seed of the woman. He's thinking, maybe my son will bring grace to the people. But God says, no, it's not going to be like that. Because I'm a God of mercy. I'll bring grace to Noah. Because Lord, as their people are praying, we know we can't fix this one. And we can't. We can't fix it. People's hearts. We don't have that domain. So in conclusion, what do we see? We see that the sons of God, God's people, need the Son of God. The sons of God need the Son of God because the sons of God let us down. The Sethites saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as many as they wanted for their wives. But what did the Son of God see when he looked on the daughter of man that he was going to die for? He saw depravity's gravity and it was ugly. 
Look at Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What did the Son of God see? He saw her sin and filth, depravity's gravity, that made her stink. And he washed her with the water of the word. He saw her age spots, her wrinkles, and her blemishes. And he makes her splendor, radiant, to take his breath away. He makes her fit for him. Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, earlier I mentioned several things about sexual immorality, cohabitating, pornography, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. Are you looking for comfort and rest from any of these? You see, Jesus took her as his bride. Certainly not to devour her in lust. No, he took her as his bride to give himself up for her in love. And he was devoured for her by Satan, by our sin, by the wrath of God against those on our behalf. That's a man, that's a great man, that's a husband that any woman would want who loves you for you, for you. He wants you. Can you turn your heart's gravity towards him now? You can. James says we all stumble in many ways, but we can grow, and it's a process. The question is, is will you turn your heart's gravity towards him? He loves you, and he'll meet you right here, right now, with a flood of his eternal love, the flood of the Father's eternal love for you. All you need to do is come to him in faith, repent of your sins and say, I don't want that anymore. And when we turn around, look, we stumble in many ways, James says, but we're going to keep going the same direction. We're going to keep pushing because we're so loved. We're not having to do this to make God like us, to make ourselves acceptable to him. No, we're accepted. So that's why we do it, because we're so loved. Rest, comfort, relief is there for you. If you haven't come to him, come. If you're a Christian that's backsliding, come back. Because now you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you now, taking the challenge of the promise that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. We flee only to Jesus, no other refuge. We don't have any. We thank you that you saw fit to make us a fit bride for your eternal son. We humbly accept our new identity as your children and as your son's bride, and we pray that we would honor all these names by how your word and gospel and truth take root and grow into and out through our lives to others that don't know him. In Jesus' name, amen.